0: up to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. You know, a few years ago, actually it was 1993, um, Gary Chapman came out with a book called The Five Love Languages. You guys know that book? All right, and there, evidently, there are five love languages, and if you're you're married, it'll help you to know what language your spouse speaks. Um, Words of affirmation, touch, deeds of service, gifts, quality time, Um, but here's the deal if your love language is sarcasm, then today's passage is for you. God loves you, and he wants to speak your language today. That that passage in John is full of irony, it's full of reversals, it's full of sarcasm, maybe the most that you might find in the New Testament, but John makes irony part of the way his literary device, as he's telling the story of Jesus, which is one of the things that I think a lot of us resonate with, like irony and sarcasm is kind of the language of our world today. 2,000 years ago was using this to tell the story of Jesus. And so what I want to do today is just walk through the story. It's a long story. Rob only read 17 of the 41 verses, um, and he, he ended at a certain point, but I, I want to walk through the story, ask some questions like, why does Jesus do what he does it's kind of a weird way of healing someone, um, but then what happens after that, and what does God have for us in the example of the man born blind, who we don't know his name, we just call him the man born blind. So um, we'll ask him when we get to heaven, I suppose. Um, anyway, all right, let's look at 9.1. Uh, it says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Now you might one of the things that we want to note, just right off the bat, what his disciples were doing is essentially this notion within Judaism and first century Judaism, and even today, as we read Jewish wisdom literature, that there is this kind of two paths: that there's a path of the righteous and a path of the wicked. And this is what you read in the book of Proverbs. It's conventional wisdom. It's also what, we, what um, theologians called retributive theology. And that is this idea that if there are two paths, the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked, and God blesses the path of the righteous and curses the path of the wicked, that if we take that, if we take that framework and we overlay it onto our world, what we would look at is that those who have been blessed and are successful and healthy have been blessed by God, and those who are struggling with maladies or with any other sort of thing, that they have gotten to that place because they are on the wrong path, and that God is retributively giving them punishment for their maladies. And what we see here, and this is important because we're gonna see that the Pharisees in this passage, they adopt this mentality, um, and that the disciples are adopting this mentality, and that essentially Jesus is going to say that type of mentality is not how we're operating. If we look back, look at what he says following this. After they apply the logic of general retribution theology, they say he's blind, his maladies are punishments, what sin did he or his parents commit? And Jesus is going to reject this approach. Just by the way, um, one one of the things about the ancient world and ancient Judaism is they did believe that you could actually sin in the womb. You could commit sins in the womb, and they would use the example of Jacob and Esau as an example, that Esau was a bad guy and that he's trying to grab at in the womb. Anyway, so and, and there was also a notion that if you, were, if you were pregnant in the ancient world and you went into a pagan temple, that not only were you defiled, but the child inside of you was defiled as well. So this is what they're getting at. They're getting at like something must have gone wrong in this process. Either he did something in the womb, or his mom did something bad, and that's why he came out with this, with this malady, with this disorder. And Jesus is going to say, that's not the deal. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I got to just say this, just one thing. It, it's not, it really is not appropriate for us to watch. This is No extra charge for this little thing. I know we're early in the sermon and application comes later, but um, we're really not at liberty to walk around our world and simply look at that sort of a framework. And one of the things is, as much as there's a book of Proverbs, right, in, in, in wisdom tradition, two paths, the path of the righteous, the path of the wicked, and God rewards the righteous and he punishes the wicked, in wisdom tradition and in wisdom literature, you also have the book of Job where you have the man who's suffering but is righteous, is not being punished for his sin, that there's something else at work. And you also have the book of Ecclesiastes, the man who has been successful and accomplished everything, but is lost. And so we, we, have, we are not at liberty, we are not at liberty to walk around and overlay that person must be a sinner and that person must be a saint simply because of outward looks, okay? All right, sermon, sermon over on that point, okay? But I just want to make sure, like, Jesus is going to say, like, look, you guys have missed, you have missed that God has a way of redeeming every malady, that every wound turns into a scar and that God can make those scars beautiful, and if you ever doubt that, just look at Jesus, who sits enthroned, scarred, but how beautiful the scars. And even if you're in the middle, I guess, look, I, I guess we could just go off, like I'm, we could stop with the first three verses and be done. Um, you might be in the middle of something and you don't understand it, and you got to hear this. you got to hear this from Jesus. you got to hear this that it very well may be because God wants to do something to glorify himself in your situation. And I just, three verses into 41 verses, I just want to make, I want that to, I want that to come down on us. Because we can get lost in the middle, whether it's our own wrong turn or someone else has made a wrong turn against us, Or whether we're just in a fallen world, lost and not. know, we can be walking through the valley of deep darkness. And we need to remember Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of deep darkness, you are with me. All right, let's keep going. This is good. All right, anybody feeling it today? Like, I'm just, I'm feeling it, so we're just going to keep going. So who sinned? He's like, it's not that this man sinned, or even his parents. The works of God need to be displayed in him. And then he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming. We've already seen this in the book of John. Night is, night is an allusion to when Jesus dies, it's going to get dark. And whenever anything evil happens, it happens at dark. When Judas is going to betray Jesus, it is night. When Nicodemus, who's darkened, he comes at night. Day is here. And Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, I and the light of the world. And then it says this, having said these things in verse six, I just you, you think about the scene, like Jesus is like, they come across this blind man, and, and it's almost like Jesus is indignant. He's like, This man didn't sin. I am the light of the world. Then he spits. <laughs> the great thing about no extra charge for this either, the, the verb for spit in Greek is actually the verb is pituo. I know, it's like it actually sounds like what it is. Anyway, he spits. He spits on the ground. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with his saliva, then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. This is the second passage in a row where Jesus goes down to the ground. Somebody asked me, how many times am I going down today? Uh, We had this writing in the ground, but now he's spitting on the ground, and he's picking it up, and he's making mud. Disgusting. Is anybody else? Like, this is weird. Strange. And then he says, so he spits on the ground, he makes mud with saliva, he anoints the man's eyes, puts it on his face, smears it on his face. I mean, come on, this is kind of gross, everybody. Anybody? All right, okay, only me. And then he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and he came back seeing. Okay, all right, why spit? Let's go with this, why spit? Okay, all right. Now, there are some in the Jewish world, believe it or not, in the Jewish world as well as in the ancient world, there were some folk beliefs that believed that spit had healing powers. So especially in the Jewish world, a first, I know, sounds weird, a firstborn that spits, there was an understanding that that spittle had some healing powers to it. Now, those of you who are firstborn, let's not practice this right now, okay? All right? Um, But also in... in world magicians would oftentimes use spittle in their practices and this is why probably some people are like how does he do this he does this with spittle like is he a magician is he a pagan what exactly is going on there are two other places in the gospels not in john but in the gospel of mark where jesus heals with spit i know mark 7 33, the healing of the deaf and dumb man he, he puts his finger he spits and puts his fingers in his ears okay um, and then um, the healing of the, uh, uh, the blind man in Mark 8, uh, yeah, the healing of the blind man in Mark eight twenty three in Bethsaida. Anyway, two other places in the Gospels, other Gospels, where Jesus heals with spit. Now, why mud? Why, why not just spit and then go in, you know, like, poof, like, like the three stooges, like spit and then boop, you know, and the guy's like, ah, okay, um, okay, that's not, these are serious things, everybody. Stop, you know. Okay, all right, so why mud? Why mud? So there's a number, of, and this is where you get, you get four different commentaries on the gospel. of John, you're gonna get four, ans- four answers on this, okay? So there are different ideas about why the mud, okay? One thing is in Genesis chapter two, when God makes humanity, he makes humanity out of the dust of the ground. And so one thing that could be happening is, okay, this guy, he was born, his eyes, like, All right, so I'm God, so I can just go, like, let's make some mud, and then we're making, let's make some new eyeballs. Like, okay, we need a a retina, we need an optical nerve, you know, and then he's all, you know, he just, then he stands up, he just kind of puts them in, right? And then go wash, and it's going to be fine. So there might be a sense in which Jesus is, like, playing off of this idea that he is the creator, he was there at the beginning, and he is the one who actually knows how to make this all right. We're going to see later mud plays a role as as we kind of move along, but that might be, it might also be an intentional act to kind of poke at the Pharisees, and we're going to get to that in just a second. Now, why the Pool of Siloam? So he's like, I'm going to spit on the ground, I'm going to make mud, and then I'm going to smear it on his face, and then I'm going to tell him to go wash in the Pool of Siloam. One of the coolest things when I went to Israel, the first time I went to Israel... Uh, we were in the city of David, and when you're in the city of David, it's on the southern side of Jerusalem, and you walk out from the Temple Mount, you cross the street, and you go into the old city of David. And the old city of David is on this hillside that starts almost at the top, like at the bottom of uh, where, the, uh, where the Temple Mount is, and then you start walking down. And as you walk down, and you get this kind of sense about how these are terraced terraced hills, and it moves down into the, into the Kidron Valley. Now, as you go down to the bottom of the Kidron Valley is where the, sp- the spring of Gihon is, and it's really the main, most reliable water source for the city of Jerusalem. And so we go through, we go in there, and there's this like Hezekiah um, hewn out this tunnel. Hezekiah's tunnel, anybody? Those of you who are with me? Yeah, Totally. You walk through this tunnel, you've got, you know, your, your ankle deep and, and knee deep in water and you're going through this and it's like this 200-yard tunnel and you're like working through, you've got to have a headlamp and the whole thing, but it, it's awesome. But the first time I did that, you come out and I was like, I, told, I talked to our, our tour guide, Ronan, and I said, where are we, Ronan? And he's all, we're at the Pool of Siloam. And i and like, my, you could have probably seen my head like blow off, my head just blew straight off my shoulders. Like, I just, and I went into full geek mode. I'm like, oh my gosh! So now I'm like imagining this whole story, because we just walked, essentially, we've walked like 800 feet descent from the Temple Mount, and it's about a quarter mile, maybe even a half mile down. And now I'm thinking about this guy, like Jesus smears mud all over this guy's face and says, why don't you take a little hike? Why don't you walk down to the spring of Siloam, to the pool of Salome, and wash, and it says that he does. And so I don't know exactly why he does this. I mean, maybe to create the distance and maybe to create the tension where he does it. And we do see that Jesus does these kind of long-distance healings in the Gospel of John. I wonder if he just wanted to give the man an opportunity to walk up to Jerusalem and sing the Psalms of Ascent for the first time songs of thanksgiving that pilgrims would sing as they went up to Jerusalem, as he actually saw the city for the first time. Anyway, I don't know. I don't know exactly why it is, but it, it is, it's fascinating why he does this. All, it's all that to say, he goes down, he washes, and he can see. So the man is blind, Jesus does all this, he washes, he can see, and it says then that he probably then goes home to his home neighborhood. Look at verse 7. Or verse 8. The neighbors who used to see him before, uh, sorry, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, Yeah, it's him. And others were like, No, he just kind of looks like that guy. And he's like, It's me. It's me, everybody. And so he's back in his home environs, his neighbors, and those who used to see him begging. So if you were blind, they would probably, your, your people would, your, your family would probably take you out, put you on a corner so that you could beg. This was how you would make money. You didn't have any other skills that you could do. So they would put him out. And now people are like, well, this guy used to be on the corner begging, but now, like, he's walking around. He's not bumping in anything. Like, he knows what's going on. His eyes are open. Like, he's super bright. Like, what's going on? And he's like, I, uh, here I am. So, verse 10. They said, how are your eyes opened? He said, the man who's called Jesus, he made mud, he anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash, which is exactly what happened. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. And this is the first awesome place of irony and sarcasm in the entire book. Because they say, you know, who did this? And he's uh, the man called Jesus, and this is how he did it, and he went down, and I washed, and I came back, and I could see, and they're like, where is he? He's all, I don't know, I was blind. <laughs> and this is gonna be important, this is gonna be important, because the man cannot pick Jesus out of a crowd, but he testifies skillfully as to who he is and what he did for him. And this is gonna be very important for, the, for John, the author John, who is writing this in an era when the eyewitnesses of Jesus are all dying off, and John might have been the last living eyewitness, perhaps. And there's this question about, do I have to have seen Jesus in order to believe in him? And here we're going to have an example of a man who cannot pick Jesus out of a crowd, has no idea what he looks like, but his life was changed by Jesus. And he's testifying skillfully about who he is and his awareness of who Jesus is continues to grow and grow and grow. This is going to be a very important person because he is you and I. We can't pick Jesus out of a crowd as much as you've watched The Chosen, okay? That same guy plays Lonnie Frisbee. So who is he? He's an actor. We don't know what Jesus looked like. We don't know. But we can still encounter him. And we can still testify skillfully as to who he is, even if we have never actually seen him. And that's this man right here. Look at verse uh, 13. Uh, Let's see, where are we at? Uh, Yeah, so the neighbors then, look at verse 13. The neighbors decide to take the man to the religious leaders. They brought the man to the Pharisees who had formerly been born blind. Now we don't know whether they're like, okay, we're going to take him to the Pharisees because this great miracle has happened and the Pharisees need to know about it because they are religious representatives or because they know that the Pharisees are really interested in what Jesus is doing because there's controversy. So this guy had an encounter with Jesus, we got to take him to the Pharisees. We don't know if they're just like excited or naive or whether they're actually like hey, Jesus made mud on the Sabbath, and now we got to get the Pharisees to get a ruling on this. Maybe this is a way we can get Jesus. So we don't know exactly why they take him to the Pharisees, but they do. And when they had taken him to the Pharisees, it says in verse 14, Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened his This is the first time in the passage that we understand that it's the Sabbath, and there's a reason why this is significant, because it turns out that making mud on the Sabbath is a no-no. And we'll walk through why that is in just a second. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to him, He put mud on my eyes, I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs, and there was a division among them. And this is significant because if, if, if they as a group are trying to trap Jesus and they are divided on what they think about him, that's not gonna go well. And so what Jesus has done is by doing this miracle, he has divided them, and here's why. So this, this idea of Jesus bending down, spitting, it's not a sin to spit on the Sabbath, but it is a sin to make mud or clay, and it breaks, uh, it breaks, so, it's not what it says in the Old Testament, but by this time, there had been secondary rules about the Sabbath that had come up that, that well-meaning rabbis had made so that there would be, uh, there would not be a breaking of the Sabbath. It's not really a breaking of Torah, it's a breaking of their secondary regulations, Now, if you want to know what these secondary prohibitions are, um, in the Mishnah, there's a tractate called um, Shabbat. And in Shabbat, it gives 42 categories of ways that you can break the Sabbath. Okay? It gives a lot of categories. Now, here are the the leading possibilities of what Jesus did to break the Sabbath. One of the prohibitions is you cannot need things. Not need like I want it, I need it, but like with bread. You can't knead bread. And that probably by, by spitting and making mud, he does some kneading. Okay? That's one, that's one possibility of what they're talking about. Okay? The other, the other issue is there's, uh, mixing is the same thing. You can't mix. You can't mix. I feel like I'm doing a dance up here, right? Okay. You can't mix. Uh, one of the other things is you can't actually, technically, there are prohibited classes of anointing people with things on the Sabbath. And you're like, where is this in the Old Testament? But these are traditions that arise over the years, okay? Also, it is prohibited, unless a life is in danger, it's prohibited to heal on the Sabbath. We see this in the Gospel of Mark, that he heals the man with the withered hand, and it's on the Sabbath, and they're like, why'd you do that on the Sabbath? He's like, why not give life on the Sabbath? Like, what's wrong? Like, and this gets into the issue about like, There's this, this guy has never seen before ever. And he's standing before saying, Jesus healed me. And they're like, he broke the Sabbath. And we're getting into these, we're getting into this irony of that. The man who's blind is starting to see clearly. But the people who say, I can see clearly, their vision is getting cloudier and cloudier towards Jesus. This kind of, um, this, this idea of, of like uh, these secondary prohibitions, it kind of works like this, like uh, a bunch of rabbis sit around and they're like, okay, okay, uh, don't break the Sabbath. Yeah, don't break the Sabbath. Don't break the Sabbath. What does it mean to break? No work, no work on the Sabbath. No work on the Sabbath. What does it mean to work? Okay, well, what did we do when we were in Egypt? We were slaves in Egypt. Yeah, we were slaves. Don't, don't do that on the Sabbath. You had to work on the Sabbath. What did we do? Uh, we made bricks. Okay, what do you, how do you make, no making bricks on the Sabbath. Yes, amen, no bricks on the Sabbath. Well, how do you make bricks? Well, you gather straw. Okay, no gathering straw on the Sabbath. Okay, what else do you do to make bricks? You make mud. No, okay, no making mud on the Sabbath. So it's all these like derivative ideas. Like We don't even want to get close to breaking the Sabbath, so no mud making. And so Jesus is like, hey guys, I'm going to make some mud. And I'm going to take my chances with the Lord. Right? Like, I'm going to give life. So this idea that he's not actually breaking the actual Torah Sabbath, he's breaking these secondary regulations and what this does is it brings these these religious leaders to this point of division he doesn't keep the our sabbath but he can't be a sinner his signs are just too impressive and this is another example remember we talked about in the gospel of john the idea of signs signs oftentimes don't save people who see the signs signs oftentimes just confuse people and that's what we see here. The sign has not provided more clarity as to who Jesus is. For some, for some it has. But for others, it is starting to cloud their vision. His, Jesus and the sign has divided them. And as the Pharisees' sight gets more and more cloudy, what we start to see is that the blind man is going to start seeing clearer and clearer. Remember what he said? They're like, where is he? And he's like, I don't know. Well, he's going to start to get clearer. Look at, look, at verse seven, uh, look at verse 17. He said to the blind man, what do you say to him? Oh, so in verse 17, they're asking these questions about, like, he, how did he open your eyes? And they finally turn to the blind man and they say, well, what do you say about him? Like, we're divided. What do you say about him? And he's like, a prophet? Like, he, like he's, 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 be, he's a good guy? Like, he's a, he's a really good guy? He's not a bad guy? Like, he's a prophet? And then they find the man's parents to confirm his identity because they're like, well, maybe he's, maybe he's like, just pretending to be the man born blind or maybe he, he, like, maybe he wasn't born blind, so let's call the parents in. And the parents are essentially like, look, we don't want to say anything bad that's going to get us banned. Like, leave us out of it. He is of age is what they say. He is of age. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he who had been born blind had received his sight until they called the parents of the man Is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? Well, this was our son. We know he was blind. But how we see, we don't know. Like, you got the wrong people. Like, ask him. He's old enough. Essentially, what they're saying is that bar mitzvah. he can be his own witness here. He's old enough to witness in court. They're like, we just don't want to get in trouble. Therefore, ask him. He's of age. So the man is gone From I don't know, to he's a prophet, but what we're going to see is this guy's just this guy is just getting warmed up. And the more and more clearly he sees, the more and more bold his testimony is. I think it's the great irony is like, they're like, we need to catch Jesus in the act of breaking the Sabbath. Do we have any witnesses? The only guy who could witness that he broke the Sabbath was blind at the time. Like it's, They're just like, we, we're, I, this, this whole thing is just throwing them all off. So for a second time, verse 24, they call the man who's been blind. They said to him, give glory to God, which is essentially saying, okay, tell the truth. We know this man is a sinner. And then he says this, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. And then the next great sarcastic comment. Maybe the the mother of all sarcastic comments. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he said, I told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciple too? I mean, it is awesome. It is, this guy, blind, cannot see, and is now standing up in front of the most educated people in the land and he's teaching them he's schooling them i don't you guys don't know i don't know but one thing i do know i couldn't see and now i can and i want to become his disciple don't you and the readers as we as readers are like what this is awesome and the, but the pharisees are like Gah, what do we 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 have no witnesses we can't answer this guy we can't we can't trap Jesus. And then it just gets adversarial after that. The more blind the Pharisees get, the more the man sees. Verse 29, We know, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not worry, comes, know where he comes from and that's so they're saying like you want to be his disciple we're disciples of Moses we know about Moses and the guy's like really you do know about Moses like he goes well here's an amazing thing you do not know where he comes from but he opened my eyes we know and this is when he just he's on a roll he's like we know that God does not listen to sinners but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will God listens to him Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. There is no example in the Old Testament of someone being healed from blindness, from congenital blindness. As a matter of fact, healing, there there really are only like one, maybe two examples of someone being healed of blindness in the Old Testament, but it the blindness is there's all kinds of healings in the old testament but blindness is not one of them as a matter of fact in the book of isaiah when messiah comes one of the things it says is that the eyes of the blind are going to be opened which is ironic because the same people who have studied those passages have been blinded to them they can't see they said, if this man were from God, he could do nothing. Or he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And then they, they basically go back to what the disciples originally said, is that retribution theology. You were, born for, you were blind from birth. You're, you were born in utter sin. What are you? How can you talk to us? We're on the right path. You, have, for some reason, you must have been on the wrong path. Like they get back to name calling. And they cast him out. Another amazing ironic moment. You were born in utter sin and you would teach us and we as readers are like, yes, you should listen. They misunderstand the issue of sin. The man is teaching them. The light is shining on them. Jesus says, I am the light of the world and the light is shining and one of the things that we're seeing, when the light of the world shines, it will illumine for some but it will blind for others. That some people, their eyes will not be opened. And they cast the light out and they cast him out. And we go to verse 35. I love this part of the story. Just because um, it says, um, Jesus heard that they cast him out. And so what Jesus does is he goes looking for the man. I don't want to go over this too quickly. Jesus hears that they cast him out, so what does Jesus do? He takes the same posture that God takes and he goes out looking for the man. And I want to say this clearly God is a seeking God, He is not simply on the throne, when will they come to me? when will they show up he is like i've got to go find them i love them i have to go find them and jesus hears this guy's out and so what does he do jesus is going out to find our god is a seeking god our god is a finding god i love in the story of the prodigal son in luke chapter 15 that it's not that the son comes home, the father runs out to him, and when it says later on with the older brother, the older brother's like, why are you celebrating? He's like, my son was lost, but I found him. God is after you. He's looking for you. He's out. fight; He wants to find you. This is the posture of Jesus. I think sometimes we just go over this, but Jesus hears this guy gets cast out and he's like, I gotta go find this guy. Jesus heard they cast him out, verse 35, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? I don't, he might have been disguising his voice, right? I don't know. Because the guy is like, at this point, maybe the guy is like, hey, I, I really stuck it to the Pharisees, but I'm out. And maybe this is a little bit of exasperation, like he's like, I just got kicked out of the synagogue for this guy. And you're like, and he's like, well, who is he? Who is he? He's like, I want to believe, but I don't know who he is. And then verse 37, Jesus said to him, you've seen him, and he's the one who's speaking to you. And then verse 38, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Verse 38. And if you want to get found, if you want to get found by God, verse 38. Lord, I believe, and I'm going to worship. Lord, I believe, and I'm going to worship. This guy was blind. This guy was blind. And now he could not see more clearly. And as his sight is sharpened. The Pharisees and religious leaders' sight is being clouded. And as the passage finishes up, he says, For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, Are we also blind? And Jesus says, I don't want to say, but... um, If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. I love that Jesus still cannot pick Jesus out of a crowd, but he is still skillfully testified as to who he is, and as soon as he has the opportunity to meet Jesus, he believes in Jesus. I think this person, and we've already alluded to it, If you could say say this, I have never seen Jesus, but I believe in Jesus and I can testify about Jesus, that's the situation of the man born blind. And John, what we're going to see later on in the Gospel of John, John is going to be praying on the night that he is betrayed before he goes to the cross in this high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. He prays for his disciples who are going to go out and share the news about him. He prays for them. But he also prays this really interesting prayer. He prays, I don't just pray for them. I pray for those who are going to hear on account of their message. And in this high priestly prayer, we have this idea in John's audience, because most of John's audience was not alive when Jesus came on the scene, that they have to rely on eyewitness testimony. And that's, that's like us. We weren't around when Jesus was there. We have not been able to be eyewitnesses to this. We have only heard through the testimony of Scripture and through the testimony of others who have been able to say, this is what the Lord has done for me. That's why I'm here. I'm not here because I am an eyewitness of Jesus. And so the man born blind actually becomes a model for you and I 2,000 years later. I couldn't pick Jesus out of a crowd, but I can testify about who he is and what he has done in my life. That is the man who's born blind. That is us. And I think sometimes we feel like we're not qualified to talk about Jesus. Like, yeah, I wasn't an eyewitness, or I haven't gone to school to do it, or I don't totally know, but in the Gospel of John, what I love about what John does is he makes it very simple to testify about Jesus. All you have to do is say what Jesus has done for you. He just, he saw me under the fig tree. That's Nathaniel. He said I needed to be born again. He told me everything I've ever done. The woman at the well. He healed my son. The official who meets him in Cana. Cana. He told me to pick up my mat and walk. The man at the pool of Bethesda. I heard him say, if anyone is thirsty, come and let him drink. And now this man. I was blind, and now I can see. That's testifying about who Jesus is. And I think I've said this from here, from the, the pulpit before, but I think, I think for all of us, it deserves a reflection to say, what is, if there is one sentence that you could have, like, what has Jesus done for you? What has Jesus done for you? And just to reflect, and it might not be the easiest thing to come up with, but look, I think, like I said for me, I, what has Jesus done? I, Jesus has given me purpose in my life. Things just seem to make more sense with Jesus. He forgave me of all my sin. In my most desperate moment, I cried out and he was there. I felt shame and he took away all my shame. He helped me understand why I don't feel at home in this world. Or maybe your testimony about him is, I just can't remember a time in my life where he wasn't present. Like, look, all of those, are, that's just one sentence, one sentence at a time. But like the man, like the man born blind, all it took was one sentence. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. And that then allows him to testify about who Jesus is. I just think it's worth it's worth some time to reflect, and it's going to be different for every person. But just why do you believe? If, if you have a friend at a church, you're a Christian. Why do you go to church? Why do you believe in Jesus? Why Why do you do this? And you can just say, He changed my life. I felt shame. He took all my shame away. I used to live one way, and now I live. As in obedience to Him, whatever it is, however you want to articulate that, whatever it is, it's worth having that phrase in your pocket. I love if you watch the Chosen, if you watch that that mo- the, the the show, the Chosen. The woman at the well, she shows up and she's like, she's like, hey, you know Jesus, and they're like, yeah, we know. He told you everything he's, you've ever done. Like people are almost sick of like, we know, we know, we know. Like, and because she's like, that's what I have to say. What do you have to? about Jesus, and the man born blind is like, I've got a great one, and I love now, like you got the hymn Amazing Grace, and now everybody can say that, right? I was blind, but now I I once was lost, but now I'm found. Blind, but now I see. I love that his words get put to song in that, and I do think that even the as I talk with students and as I worked as a youth pastor for, for years and even at and people are like look I, I grew up in a Christian family I don't feel like I ever like walked away from the Lord I, I just I did all the right things I, I think actually I think it's an awesome testimony to say I can't remember a time in my life where he wasn't there it doesn't have to be this, ra- this radical transformation but simply the testimony he has always been there for me always That's a great testimony about Jesus. One sentence. That's it, one sentence. Just to ask that question, what has he done for you? And John says, "Why?" let's see how much mileage you can get off that one sentence. The man born blind becomes a model of having a great one sentence testimony and Jesus finds him and loves him. I just think, I can't wait to meet that guy Why don't we pray? Why don't we just reflect for a little bit? Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. But just to reflect and just to ask yourself that question, like what would that one sentence be for you? And maybe even just to write it down. Write it down on on your bulletin or in your Bible. Like what is that one sentence? What has Jesus done for you?